welcome to The Third Wheel. Today we are going to be finishing The Way of Kings. We are going to start with chapter 60, and then we're going to say the words and activate our stormlight and get all the way to the end of this book. We thought we were going to stop around 50 pages before the end, because this was already getting pretty long, but we had already done all the reading, and we figured, let's just get this done, because there's still some good stuff to talk about in that wrap-up, so we're going to get there. I'm Jesse, I'm the person who's read all these books before. I'm Tyler, I'm the one who's a hair's breadth from having read all of them. I'm like, almost halfway through Oathbringer. I'm Bjorn, and... I read this chapter, I think, two or three days ago, so I'm, I'm very uh, ahead of my reading schedule. Yeah, Bion's percolation time has continued to increase. Bion was so hyped, they called me let's to talk not, about it. Let's not spoil it. Yeah, yeah, but, it's going to be a long one, but life before death, am I right? Am I right? I mean, Bjorn, if you have any general feelings about the end of the book, something like things that we can sort of pinpoint as we go through it, do you have any feelings about it? I mean, I sent you the text where it's like, God is dead and we have killed him. Ooh-woo. Ooh-woo. Because um, that's the, the, the guy in the visions who's just a moroseful hologram. Yeah. I was a god. But someone with the name of capital O something and some D's and other consonants killed him. Mm-hmm. There's only one other consonant in that word. Maybe they're just a lot of vowels. Maybe they're secretly French. There's three vowels. Anyway, we're talking about Tanavast. We'll get to him. Yeah. Well, I was talking about, like, the uh, climax rather than, like, the end end. The Sanderlange. Oh, the, the part say. where, like, things get cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was pleased. I was pleasantly surprised because usually when it's a bunch of male-centric POVs, I get kind of bored and frustrated. Uh-huh. But um, things were happening, and I liked it. It was a very action movie. Yeah. Yes. Near the end of this section, things start moving so fast that it just sort of all becomes one good thing. I like that. <laughs> we'll get to it. We're pretty close already. Let's see, we're like... We're 88% of the way through the book. Everyone just gets a ton of revelations about everything. Oh, yeah. You don't even know. Oh, yeah. So many revelations to be had. We have a few minor chapters to get through before then, so let's get through them. Yeah, first we have to want that which we cannot have. Which is the name of chapter 60. Good segue. Thanks. You're welcome for that one. I appreciate it. He thought real hard about it. It's on the house. I appreciate you. So, in this chapter, we have Dalinar doing a bit of a conference with Navani and his sons, and he has decided that he is no longer going to abdicate, and he lets Adolin think that he had a win, but... Adolin got an Ada win. <laughs> Adolin's like, oh, you, I, I won? You I really won? <laughs> is this... What is this? Is this the real life? You listened to me once before and I didn't like it, but now you're listening to me and I like it. I think I like this, Dad. <laughs> Thanks, Daddy. Yeah, and then Dalinar has another vision later on. Yeah, so I was just trying to see if there was anything worth talking about before the vision. We got a, bit, a mention of a pain reel, which is a fabriel that is also Vicodin. 
Yeah, it's... Well, it's better, because, like, it doesn't affect you in any way except removing the pain. So it's not addictive. Right. I mean, it could be addictive in the sense of, like... If you're, like, an arthritic person. Yeah, like, you could... Chronic pain. Right, you could no longer be able to function without it, but it's not, like, affecting your brain chemistry. Okay. Magic. But yes, as Tyler said, this chapter transitions into another pretty important Dalinar vision. Yeah, I was rereading it right before we started, and uh, with my later knowledge, which isn't even complete, there's a lot of stuff in here I didn't even realize was in here. Yeah. So, in this vision, Dalinar is having a conversation with Nohadon, the author of The Way of Kings, immediately after an especially devastating desolation. Yeah, the Nohadon says that it's like 90% of the people in his country are dead, and like most of the other countries that he thinks about are going to collapse because so many people are dead, and he's like considering whether the world will be able to survive the next desolation. Mm -hmm. And he says that this desolation was particularly bad because they were left vulnerable by a civil war between surge binders and he wonders if those who have the nahel bond with their spren need to be more scrupled with their acts yeah so wow they need a code well ask the radiance they need to live up to some ideals yeah so essentially this is no hadan talking about surge binders before the Knights Radiant were formed, and essentially they were as bad as people in the current time think of the Knights Radiant. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. But Noadon helped. But after, well after this vision. He got better. Yeah. Or the world got better. Dalinar sort of discusses his revelations regarding Noadon and the Way of Kings with uh, with Alokar. <laughs> in very aggressive fashion later. So as the vision comes to an end, Navani recognizes some of the words Dalinar was speaking while he was thrashing around, and she recognizes it as a lyric from a song supposedly written in Dawn Chant, the language of the heralds. Yeah, the old, like... It's the old tongue. It's the old tongue that everybody spoke. Dalinar being, like, Matt and just speaking in old tongues. Pretty much. And for Navani, this is proof that there is knowledge in his visions beyond what he could know. Therefore, his visions are real. Yeah, which is really cathartic, because the whole time we've kind of been like, is he just going crazy? Well, I mean, as the readers, I think we were pretty sure he wasn't crazy. Right, but I mean, like, we're, we don't in have to universe... Deal with- yeah, we don't have to deal with Dalinar thinking about it anymore. Yeah. Now we just have to deal with Cal's ever-present mental neuroses. I mean, by the end of this book, it seems like Cal is what totally over it, right? Yeah, he no longer has the big sad. He's, he's totally over all of his trauma. He's totally not. We'll get there. Cal is down to the medium sad. <laughs> and One day the, he'll get and- down to a kid's meal sad. <laughs> but he's also up to the medium mad. We'll get to it. Uh, Chapter 61 is called Right for Wrong. There's not 
a ton happening as I'm looking through this chapter. Yeah, I super don't remember anything. Is this the one where they make out? Yes. The most important note on this chapter is that Dalinar and Navani have a big old heart-to-heart and mouth-to-mouth. And they stop pretending that they hate each other. And they work on their communication skills. Yeah. Yep. Now they're very much like, hey. <laughs> I mean, this might be a little glib, but that's literally the whole chapter. Yeah. I mean, I just skimmed it as well. And I mean, I like skimmed it before we started recording and also skimmed it just now. And like, I'm pretty sure literally nothing happens. Except that they make out. Yeah. If I cared more about this relationship at this point, I might have more to say, but... Yeah, I mean, the relationship, spoilers, like, continues to be very good, and I enjoy it, and I, like, continue to enjoy reading about it as time goes on in the books. There's no, like, will they, won't they, or Uh just, like, garbage back and forth. It's just two mature adults being, like... I like you. I like you, too. Have you watched uh, Battlestar Galactica? Nope. There's a pretty good romance in that show between two old people, and it's great. Well, yeah, that's my point, is there's no, like, no will they, won't they, no nothing, just two people that like each other. It's pleasant to read about, but there's not much to discuss. Unfortunately, in Battlestar Galactica, there's a lot of will they, won't they. Anyways. Unfortunate. Chapter 62 is called Three Glyphs. I remember. There are three. Yeah. It's referring to a prayer that Kaladin has wrapped around his arm. Uh, Wind, protection, and beloved. Yeah. A prayer to Jezereza? Jezereza? Jezereza. The Stormfather. You know. Jesus. That one individual. Yeah. So this chapter opens on Bridge 4, approaching another bridge run. I was listening to the last episode. It was sort of a theme that all of Kaladin's chapters were bridge runs, because we're gaining momentum. Gaining momentum like a team carrying a bridge. Yep. Kaladin notes that Dalinar has given up on using his mechanical bridges and are now using bridge crews himself. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. For real. No ethical consumption of stormlight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, now Kaladin can't do it anymore. He needs to be perfectly ethical at all times. Kaladin has become a capitalist. How sad. So this bridge run is different from most, because this time Kaladin has used the remains of Parshendi corpses to create a suit of armor that will particularly piss off the Parshendi. And it works. Yeah, it works super well. I mean, if you come in wearing the skin of your enemy and your enemy is going to be pretty mad. Yeah, even if they don't have some kind of fixation on sacred corpses, that would be pretty disturbing. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of their main things. I think they mention um, either in this chapter or the next that, like, they've started just leaving Shen back. Yeah. uh, From runs because he's like so disturbed by the armor. Yeah, I think it's specifically after this run. I mean, yeah, it's just like, let's traumatize him constantly. The one single thing they care about. Yeah. 
So Kaladin does some stormlight-enhanced dodging and weaving. And then subconsciously activates, and finally realizes that he's been activating the... I don't know if this would be the gravitation surge or whatever, but yeah, he's the attraction. attracting the arrows. Yeah. So he's been doing that all along, and now he's realizing. Yeah. He looks down and he's like, oh, look, I've attracted all these arrows. I'm so sexy to these arrows. <laughs> these Parshendi really want me. Arrows want me. Parshendi fear me. So because Kaladin takes all the attention, all of the bridge crews are able to set their bridges without any casualties. Wow. Yeah. What a and, guy. And after the battle, we get a bit of a quip from Sadeus saying, All 20 bridges set, most with nary a casualty. It seems like a waste somehow. Holy sack of garbage. Yeah. Sadeus is a, a trash boy, as we will continue to see. And this is the part where Cal does the, I'm just going to completely dance in front of all the bridges as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's what he's doing, is he's like, you know, very booga booga booga, shoot your arrows at me. Yeah. Here's my Parshendi. It works for more than just his bridge, it works for all the bridges. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they even mentioned that the Parshendi are no longer, like, chanting together. And doing their, like, coordinated arrow volleys. They're just, like, shooting arrows at him specifically as fast as they can. There are no longer songs to be had. Yeah. Well, they switch to a different song. I think Yes. It would be... We'll learn later why it would be quite the thing if the Parshendi were out of rhythm with each other. Yeah. Are they Uh, a hive mind? I mean, yeah. Um, We get some talk in the epilogue chapters where Yasna says that essentially Parshman and Parshendi are all on, like, an interconnected hive mind and share information and emotions with each other. They've got, like, an internet brain implant with Discord open at all times. And they are the same, except we've enslaved and domesticated the Parshman? What a great question. Yeah. Or are they all just on the inside? What a great question. Seething and tolerating. There's some nuance to that question. There's a truly disturbing amount of nuance to that question. Yeah. But yes, they are, like, essentially, they are the same species. Actually, not just essentially. They are the same species. There's just something different about the Parshman and the Parshendi. Okay. Not to compare them to pigs, but feral hogs and the pigs we eat are the same. It's just if pigs get in the wild, they get nasty tusks and they get more terrifying. Yeah, I guess it could be something like that. Like, literally the same animal, same everything, same DNA. It's just environment change and they go feral. It'd be like that, except if the feral hogs had gods. How many feral hogs are there? At least 30 to 50. Distressing. And they're going to roll up on my yard while my kids are playing. Oh, no. Gunsprin. <laughs> Gunsprin. Bang, bang. So Kaladin continues to have some debates with Syl about the, his condition of feeling the need to save people while gifted. Yeah. He is very wrapped up in, like, I gotta save everybody. Syl's like, you don't. Kaladin's like, I agree. 
but what if I did? He had this one line that made me kind of feel for him. Like, usually I feel like he's being a bit whiny. I mean, he is being a bit whiny, but he says, Save them, Kaladin whispered. Do the impossible, Kaladin, but don't push yourself too hard. But also don't feel guilty if you fail. Precarious ledges. So essentially he's taking inventory of all of the things he's supposed to do for his own mental health. And they kind of conflict with each other. He needs a therapist. He needs a therapist. He needs... Gosh, if only he had some sort of ideals to live by. <laughs> so, while Kaladin is debating with his invisible friend, the Parshendi have wrapped around the battle with Sidaeus' forces and are doing a surprise attack on Kaladin in particular. But Dalinar comes in with his shard, pl- with his shard plate and shard blade and specifically saves him. Yeah. Big hero. What a guy. You would almost think this would change some of Kaladin's viewpoints. No. Not yet. Not yet. Thanks, Dalinar, colon. I mean, he's been hurt too much. He can't immediately hope again. Like, even if he wasn't full of guilt and many other undiagnosed things, if you've been hurt that much, you wouldn't immediately trust that. Yeah, he's very much like one of those dogs that's been abused and doesn't like people a certain height. And this, But Callan doesn't like people with a certain eye color. He's racist, but <laughs> it's fine. Something, something, psychology of the oppressed. It's in there. Yeah, like, you can't exactly be racist against, the, against someone who's systematically your oppressor. We've yeah. had this discussion. <laughs> so, chapter 63 is called Fear. So, in this chapter, essentially, all of Bridge 4 are creating uh, sets of carapace armor for themselves. Yeah, um, I think that's... I mean, I skimmed it earlier. I don't remember much happening besides the... It's just Kaladin being like, gosh, I love Bridge 4. Gosh, I love creating carapace armor. Yeah, it's just sort of a final check-in with Bridge 4 before the climax. Yeah. Although, Tyler, I think there might be something of interest to you about Moash in this chapter. Uh Uh-oh, SpaghettiO. We get a note where Kaladin is watching Moash practice the spear, and he says that he moved an attack after attack, the dozen spheres, giving him an equal number of shadows. A dozen shadows? Hmm. Hmm. Is Moash secretly 12 people in a trench coat? Sounds like... Whoa. <laughs> Jesse, you weren't supposed to spoil that. I mean, there's 12 light sources, but... Interesting. Sounds we, like Moash has a lot of shadows. We get some talk about someone who might have 12 shadows. Is it 12? Or is it 13? Uh, the last thing that I read said 9, but maybe that number increases as time goes on. Anyways, it's just a connection I made. Moash has a lot of shadows. What a guy. Yeah. And uh, the chapter continues with Kaladin sort of checking in with Moash, where Moash says that the reason he trains so hard isn't because he wants to protect anyone, it's because there's someone he wants to kill. I mean, he's honest about it, I guess. Yeah. But that was Kaladin's thing earlier, too, right? So, like, we can't judge Moash too harshly. I don't think he's done anything wrong. 
<laughs> I mean, I've seen the meme, so I know clearly he does wrong. It's just... At this point, you can safely say Moash has done nothing wrong, but we'll get to it. I can't wait for him to do something wrong. I don't even yeah. know if he's done the wrong thing where I'm at yet. You're not quite there. Sick. So there's a bit of a note where Kaladin thinks about the fact that with this tactic of using the Parshendi armor, if their casualties have dropped to zero on bridge runs, why run away? He'd be about as safe as he was back when he was a willing spearman, which is sort of an interesting question. Also, what is freedom? Yeah. Also, assuming Sadeus doesn't decide to call you, because yeah. why? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just an interesting question because being a soldier sucks pretty badly, too. And being a soldier, you also can't just leave whatever you want. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, some of the people are on the bridge crews because they attempted to desert. Yeah. And although at this point, Kaladin with the armor is like his bridge crew probably has a lower fatality rate than just being a soldier. It's possible. But he sort of talks himself out of that line of thinking. And Teft essentially tells Kaladin that the bridge crew needs to see his powers. Reveal yourself. Strength before weakness. They need to see it. Show it, show it, show it. The people need to know. Are they going to show it? (laughs) You got to wait for the TV adaptation. Kaladin, I need you to whip it out in front of the rest (laughs) of the bridge crew. Show your manliness, Kaladin. Better be on HBO. Anyways, (laughs) chapter 64 is called A Man of Extremes. We're kind of whipping through these chapters because there's a few pretty non-banger chapters before the true Sanderland starts, so bear with us. Yeah, I mean, they're not bad. They're just, like, setting up the tone of, like, I think we're gonna do it. Everything's gonna be a-okay. Yeah. Kaladin's like, this is my last bridge run before retirement. Yeah, we gotta know something's about to happen. So in this chapter, Dalinar is having a nice romantic stroll with Navani, and we get a bit of reinforcement about just how little Dalinar remembers about his wife, and anything new he learns about her will literally slip out of his mind. Muffled noises. Yeah, the noises that Dalinar hears about his wife are crunchy, as they say. Or shush. That sounds like wind, not crunch, honey. I was imagining it as wind noises. I was imagining it as, like, static. I think that's just because you've been listening to the Magnus Archives. Crunch, crunch. Also, Dalinar wouldn't know what static is. Maybe that's just how he describes static. Are are radios real in this (laughs) world? Not yet. They're almost real in Mistborn Era, too. Yeah. Somewhere Um, in the Cosmere, a radio (laughs) crackles. Uh, Navani brings up the idea that Dalinar's guilt over his perceived violations of Alethi codes are a form of self-indulgence, which we'll come back to. Yeah, it's a fair statement. I mean, being miserable, I mean, it's not a choice per se, but there's also people who don't get help and believe they deserve it. Mm -hmm. Just choose to be happy, dummy. Have you tried yoga? (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's more detailed than that, but similar to Cal's constant fixture on his past mistakes, by perpetuating those, I don't know, brain waves or whatever, it gets ingrained more and more into the body about how they should be. And so it is a bit of a self-indulgence because it's simpler to do what you know, even if what you know is horrible to yourself. Yeah. And letting go of guilt requires new action. Which, and that's scary. Which we get to. So this romantic stroll is interrupted by a signal that the tower, the biggest plateau in the Shattered Plains, is going to be the site of a bri- of a chasm run. And he gotta go. Nothing wrong will happen. Yeah. Uh, before he leaves, Dalinar notes that he and Navani have both started thinking of themselves in terms of we. Which is sweet. Yay, finally. Yeah. I think the the next section is like um, Kaladin. It's Kaladin hearing the same thing. I'm pretty sure that the rest of the chapter is just like everybody's last minute prep. Yeah, them preparing. Yeah, we get a small section of Kaladin POV in this chapter of uh, them getting ready. They note that all of the wounded people that Bridge 4 has taken in have become well enough to help, and now they are oh, they have more than enough people to carry the bridge and do the Parshendi armor decoy tactic. And this time, rather than disdain from the other bridge crews, today the other bridge crews salute Bridge 4. Give them hope and will to live. They're heroes. Yep. And then we get a small section of Adolin getting ready for the battle, and then we're on to chapter 65, the tower. So this is when things start getting a little spicy. Mm, delicious tower run. Does every fantasy ever feature a tower? I mean, it's not a literal tower. The anyway. tower's a metaphor for a tower. These don't have anything to do with midnight. Hey, uh, you're not even on that book. Nope, I mean, not even close. In, in, in tarot, there's also... The tower? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the bad one, right? It's not necessarily bad, it just means dramatic change. Yeah. And Dalinar's um, chapter symbol looks a lot like a tarot representation of the tower. Yeah, it kind of does. Just saying. So we get some of Dalinar and Sadeus coordinating with each other, essentially reinforcing to us that Dalinar is only using Sadeus' bridge crews today. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you gotta get there as fast as possible. I mean, this could be it. This is the tower. <laughs> His magic dream visions told him to trust him, so I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So then we cut to Kaladin doing his Parshendi corpse decoy routine. He's practiced. He's got one of those, like, streamers on the stick. Yeah. Which is honestly quite horrifying and awful. Yeah, like, it's, a bit, it's a bit crazy that he thinks about doing this like it's perhaps it's easier in this situation because they literally have chitinous skin and so they're easily to become othered but that's really messed up it is pretty wild i will fight you with the corpse of your loved ones yeah it's definitely a tough look for our guy 
So during this routine, both Teft and Scar are wounded by Parshendi arrows. Too bad they don't have Stormlight to enhance their movements. Not like Kaladin. Too bad, Scrubs. <laughs> Get good. So You're then... being character development for Kaladin. <laughs> but Teft is more than that. We know Teft. Teft, my boy. We know him. We love him. And then I think we swap over to Dalinar point of view at this yep. point, right? Yep, we get some extended actioning. Sort yeah. of a rehash of some of the scenes we had of Dalinar absolutely laying waste to large crowds of Parshendi. Yeah, he's like going back and forth between letting the thrill take him and trying to, like, in his own mind, justify killing this many Parshendi. Yeah. He has a bit of a moment where a Parshendi essentially asks him not to kill him. And he's like, wait a minute, what am I doing? And then he watches one of his own soldiers kill him. It's like, well. That's war. Am I right? I'm definitely part of a just system. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The um, As I read more, the like war against the Parshendi keeps going back and forth between completely justified and like absolutely abhorrent yeah it's a bit of a question I, jesse and i were talking i actually saw him in person and i mentioned how much i was like uncomfortable with the grayness of like as a reader understanding that the conflict was completely gray versus like characters in universe being like this is black and white and jesse was like yeah sure hope it doesn't get significantly worse yeah Kaladin's going to have to deal with it. I mean, even in this book, Kaladin talks about how he sees more honor in the Parshendi way of fighting than the Alethi way of fighting, and it makes him not want to, you know, go out and slaughter Parshendi en masse again. Yeah. Can't stress enough that it's an uncomfortable thing to read. Yeah. So, during all this fighting, we get revealed to us that Sedeus's army is retreating from the tower and pulling up all their bridges, abandoning Dalinar and his troops to die. Yeah, what? it's great. How could this have happened? Shock Pikachu. Who could have foreseen this tragedy? Let's only use Sedeus's bridges. Sedeus pulls back bridges. Shocked Pikachu. <laughs> but I thought I was supposed to unite him. With death. Wrong. With death. Wrong pronoun in the pronoun game. Well, I was supposed to trust him. Um, so chapter 66 is called Codes, and we get some Kaladin perspective of him tending to his wounded, and they see that they are they have received orders to pull back and retrieve their bridge and make their way back, even though there's still, you know, a major battle going on. Yeah, I think the... The first part of this is Kaladin being like, why is this happening? Yeah, Kaladin essentially realizes that the whole thing was a setup, and he actually has a moment where he feels that this this was treachery on a grand scale, terrible enough that it made Amaram's betrayal of Kaladin seem almost trivial, which is a lot for Kaladin to say. Yeah, I mean... You don't hear him, you don't call, hear him call that experience trivial very often. Or hear him like, feel any sympathy for a light eyes whatsoever. Yeah. 
He's actually very anti-Lite-Eye sympathy. <laughs> sort of antipathy, even. Whoa. He knows the words. Yeah. <laughs> so then we cut back to Dalinar POV, where the battle is continuing, and we get a bit of explanation about why this is a viable plan for Sadeus to kill Dalinar. Like, it seems like a pretty public way to kill someone. We have, like, thousands of witnesses in Sadeus' army that could, you know, just sort of blab. But essentially, Dalinar explains in his own mind that the High Princes already weren't happy with Dalinar, and that no one would raise a fuss about it, even if someone spread the rumor about what actually happened. Yeah, he correctly uh, guesses that the plan is everybody's going to be like, oh, how sad that Dalinar's dead and we don't get to continue to like hang out here, have an infinite war that we're slowly winning and making insane amounts of money off of. Yeah. I cro- one like equals one prayer. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. Yeah, because I mean, it is a valid question if you're a reader at this point thinking like, why would Sadeus go through all of this just to kill Dalinar and thousands of innocent people? It seems like a sort of a loose plan, but then like Dalinar sort of explains it pretty much has everything he needs. Yeah, it's very upsetting. I remember reading this and being like, gosh, really hope Sadeus dies on the next page. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I remember my first time reading this book and feeling, like, pretty intensely frustrated with Sadeus at this point. <laughs> like, I <laughs> might have... I don't necessarily remember if I bought into Sadeus's redemption arc, mini-arc at this point, but <laughs> the reveal definitely affected me. I definitely was buying into it as, like, you know... Sadeus seems like just the absolute worst, but, like, he doesn't seem like... He seems lawful evil, not neutral evil. Yeah. But then... Nah, he's the worst, yo. Yeah. Um, But he gives a bit of a lawful evil explanation of his own actions later. So we get some conversation between... Sorry, I actually had one more thing to say. Yeah. Like, if... We didn't have Dalinar's point of view, and we had, um, I don't know, somebody else, and we just got to see the actions of Dalinar and Sadeus. I don't think there would be as much of an issue. I think it would be very similar, actually, because um, last time we talked about Dalinar having this arc where he has to, like, check his own privilege, which we get a lot of in his head. We get moments like we've had where, you know, he is just destroying hundreds of Parshendi and then feeling like revulsion inside of him at what he's done. Uh, But there's no outside sign of that, really. Right. And it's the same thing with Sadeus. Like, you know, he is willing to listen to the way of kings. And he, Dalinar keeps saying that I'm being told by God to trust him. And so I'm going to do it. And, you know, Sadeus is awful to the dark guys but dalinar isn't exactly that much better at this point so like maybe they're the same it's just that like one when you get dalinar's point of view 
you understand that he's going through some stuff in his own head. And then in the second book, when you get Sadeus's point of view, you're like, oh, no, he's exactly as bad as you think he is. He yeah, might actually be worse. Yeah, I was going to say, are you saying that all Sadeus needs is some sympathetic perspective? And then I realized that there are Sadeus chapters in the second book where he really is just that bad. Yeah, he's he actually might be worse than he seems right now abandoning Dalinar. Because, yeah. like, at least now he's just like, I think this is the best direction for the country. But, like... In his head, he's, like, cackling. (laughs) So, on the tower, Dalinar has a sort of revelatory conversation with Adolin, where he realizes that even if his path has led him to his doom, he doesn't feel regret or guilt about having comported himself with honor, even if it was the wrong thing in a consequentialist kind of uh, worldview. Yeah, um, I remember this moment being emotionally affecting as like, no, daddy, don't die. (laughs) Yeah, so he essentially realizes that just because other people take advantage of him for being honorable doesn't mean it's wrong to be honorable. And he's going to fight to have an honorable end. Yeah. Which involves, you know, not abandoning his men. No, he's a good guy. I would be sad to die, but if I had to die, at least let it be by Dalinar's side. Yeah, I mean, that's some comfort. I'd still rather not die. <laughs> Fair enough. But at least he's not running away and leaving you all to perish. Yes. that He'll is perish with you. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a thought that might occur to a reader. It's like, couldn't Dalinar and Adolin just sort of jump away themselves? Which, I mean, they talk about later as it being sort of a marginal play at best, but also that just something that they wouldn't consider because it would be just so horrifically dishonorable. Yeah. They highly believe in noblesse oblige. I don't know that one. Uh, That's where, like, it's the duty of noble people to uh, support the poor and the people of their country because they are so privileged. I mean... Dalinar talks about that a lot. That's sort yeah. of the whole deal of the Way of Kings. Yeah, that's like the central tenant is... And actually, they say that uh, in the... It might have been the first chapter that we read, or um, the last chapter of the last section, uh, where I think it's Teft and um, Kaladin are talking, and they say that having power... Um, like gives you the responsibility to lead and to protect people. Yeah. And we got some of that in, in Dalinar's conversation with Noadon in this section as well. Yeah. So chapter 67 is called Words. It's time. It is time to say the words. The words, Kaladin. Oh, I did not imagine Scylla's having such a squeaky little fairy voice. Yeah, I um, I played the graphic audio for Bion of this, like, a part of, I think it's this chapter, where Kaladin is, like, swearing the first two ideals. Mm-hmm. The words! Oh, God. The words, Cal! I mean, she is pretty much Tinkerbell. That's, thank you. That is not how I was envisioning her at all. I mean, she's Tinkerbell. I know, and I'm so disappointed. 
That's I was why. really so- imagining. I basically, I ended up trying to describe to Tyler, like the size of the Statue of Liberty and that level of poise and grace and intenseness, but transparent and ghosty. No, Sue is like a distractible child. No, I was thinking like older woman who has lived and has seen the world, but has forgotten things due to weird magic. I mean, hey, just because some graphic audio tells you different doesn't mean you have to get let go of that headcanon. Headcanon still is the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Pretty much. But yeah, I that's mean, how I imagined her. It's the beauty of words on the page. Yeah. So, Bridge 4, with the wo- uh, the wounded members they've taken during the assault, are, have been severely slowed down. And because of that, they're sort of just left behind. Yeah, um, Sidious is... The rest of the army totally just leaves them. Which, on the one hand, is messed up. But on the other, like... They aren't just left to die. Like, they do have a bridge. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of the one last bit of possible weirdness needed to make the climax happen. Like, you could nitpick about whether they would actually let them do this, but I don't care. Yeah, I mean, also, who cares about a bridge crew? Like, if they stay behind, they're dead. Yeah. That's the whole and, thing, right? Is like Which is what the bridge uh, commander wants anyway. Yeah. So... When they've been left behind, Calden realizes, hey, we are currently free. We have a bridge and we can go any direction we want. Yeah, we could just, it's time to hashtag walk away. <laughs> yeah, but in that realization, Calden also decides that he is going to be the one that has to stay behind and protect the bridgemen that are still back at camp. Sadly, justifying, uh, oh, is that what he says? Never mind. What? Oh, I... I mean, he also says that he needs to sell the story that they, like, all died and fell down a chasm instead of, you know, ran away. Oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the the plan that he comes up with is, like, you all escape, I will find a way back, and Uh you all... I'll tell them that you all died. Yeah. So, during all of this, they're discussing their escape, but... Kaladin is aware that in the background, Dalinar's army is dying. And when he turns around, he sees Syl as human-sized, standing and watching the battle in distress. Yeah. She... This is the first time, I think, that she becomes her full, like, human size and shape. It's really good. The image of... Her just, like, watching Dalinar's army get slaughtered. Yeah. You can almost hear the music swelling. Oh, definitely. And we get a you bit s- of... Sorry, You Say Run is playing in the background, and it's currently the bit before it, like, starts to slap. That is, that, that's a good one. We'll have to insert You Say Run here. Please. Can we afford to do that? I mean, do you think whoever's gonna come and slap us down? That's true. Probably. Anyways, so we got a bit of back and forth between Kaladin, Syl, and the Bridgemen, and it's sort of confirmed to us that if they do make a rescue attempt for Dalinar's men, it would be them forfeiting their bid for freedom. Yeah. Because, I mean, 
even if somehow they were to save Dalinar, like, as far as they know, Dalinar is just going to be like, hey, Blab thanks. about it. We'll uh, send you back to Sadeus now. Yeah. You did your job. Goodbye. So we just needed to establish that to understand why it's important that they all make this decision, knowing what it means for them. And just a sec, my cat is mad. Why it's important to feed your cat. Uh, I was going to say, so this ends with everybody else, like everybody except Cal, uh, picking up the bridge and starting to get it into position to... uh, Well, to like help Dalinar escape, right? Or do they start to push it away? We get some more stuff before, like, they don't make the decision to start helping Dalinar until Kaladin comes to a couple realizations. Okay. Well, the part that I was going to say was, um, like, as, because Kaladin is drained from using the stormlight, and so he's just watching the bridge crew start to move the bridge. Mm -hmm. Well, that's later. That's. Wow. Okay. I guess I skipped more of this chapter in my skimming than I thought. He does a lot of thinking. Um, yeah. Part of that thinking is Syl telling him that she is an honor spren and her role is to bind things. Yeah. Which is such a general statement. Like, binding things could mean a lot. Well, I mean, she says that it means a lot of things. It's like the binding of oaths and promises and also the literal binding of things as in adhesion. Yeah. It's a metaphor. It's all a metaphor. Yeah. So, Dalin... Oof, not Dalinar. So, Kaladin... Kalinar. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kaladin has a bit of a synthesis between his father's lessons that the light eyes don't care about life, so we must... And it synthesizes with what he's heard of the night's radiance of life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination, death and what is right. And that's where he decides we have to go back. We have to go back, Kate. We have to go back. I don't get that one. Anyways. So this is when he tells his uh, bridge crew that they're going to bridge up and go back and save Dalinar. Yeah, at which point we cut to Dalinar. Yeah. So this is a pretty uh, moving moment in Dalinar's perspective, where essentially they're trying to die with honor, and they know that they're going to die in this battle, but then they see a bridge crew running towards them being their last hope. And it feels real good. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he is... Dalinar is, like, on the edge of, like you said, he's not about to die, but his thought process is definitely, like, coming to terms with the fact that he's about to be dead. Yeah. And then they see the bridge, and they're like, sick, let's make it happen, boys. Yeah, so now he has the opportunity to die honorably with an objective instead of just dying honorably. Which is always better. Which is a perk. Yeah, it's better. I'd say it's better. So as Bridge 4 is running back to the tower, we get some more good thinking from Kaladin, where he realizes that it's all about his choices and that he's choosing to give up his freedom 
and possibly his life for something he thinks will probably fail, but he's okay with it in the same sort of way that Dalinar accepts that acting honorably won't necessarily bring the best results, but he's still okay with that. So we get sort of a cohesion between those two ideas. Yeah, and he's thinking about the... Like, when thinking specifically about saving Dalinar rather than the soldiers, uh, he says, Us and them, he thought. That was the only way a soldier could think of it. For today, Dalinar Colon and his men were part of the us. Yeah. Like... He's, he's had a shift in thinking. It's called a paradigm shift. Look it up. It might have something to do with seeing them being betrayed by another Light Eyes, which makes him sympathize with their place. Oh, I guess anyone can be betrayed by a Light Eyes. Yeah. And we also get a moment where Kaladin feels more empowered in that he wasn't fighting for Sadeus. He wasn't working to line someone's pockets. He was fighting to protect, which is essentially another line lifted straight from Dalinar POV. Mm-hmm. I just gotta say, the level of thematic synthesis in this climax is choice. That's the thing you've always talked about with these books. Yeah, these books are about something. I'm going to have sort of a thesis at the end of why I love the end of this book so much, but we'll get to it. In this thesis, I will. I mean, you joke, but... <laughs> Gonna give us a dissertation. I might. Um, so during the approach, this is when Kaladin uh, expends too much stormlight in essentially attracting hundreds of arrows into a single shield, and this is what sort of puts him into shock from using too much stormlight, and he essentially has to be put aside by his men. Yes, this is where we get to the um, part that I was looking at, where, so they have, yeah, at this point they've gotten the bridge across, and Kaladin has to stay behind while the others pick up spears to go help the retreat. So the idea is that he's going to be setting it out, which would be kind of weird. Yeah. Um, he, like, asks Syl if there's anything she can do. Nobody has any spheres left to give him more stormlight. And so as he is watching the Parshendi prepare for the bridgemen to cross, it's happening again, Kaladin thought, dazed and overwhelmed. He found himself curling up, drained and shaken. I can't get to them. They'll die right in front of me. Tux, dead. Dalit, Sen, Maps, Dunny, dead, dead, dead. Tien, dead. Kaladin can't protect them. Sure wish he was a good, good protection boy. We'll get a resolution to that in, like, the very last chapter. Yeah. He has another shift in thinking, but while he's thinking of all the people he's let die, we get our final Kaladin flashback chapter. Thank God. Woo! <laughs> and this is sort of out of order because it comes before the last flashbacks we've seen. It is the day Tien died. Yeah. It's uh, also the first day he ever killed a man. Great. So, they're a little linked. It's his third battle. Yeah, so we got a bit of a pretty uh, visceral moment of essentially Kaladin watching Tien be killed while smiling and waving at him. Yeah, it's pretty much the worst thing I've ever seen. You get why it's traumatic. 
Don't put little kids on the battlefield. Tien is literally born to die at this point. Yeah. And uh, the commander that put Tien in his battle position says, you work with what you have, which is something that Kaladin quoted earlier, which is a little weird. (laughs) He's really internalized this trauma. And when Kaladin comes back to himself from his flashback, he's watching the bridgeman approach the tower and Syl asks him, do you know the words? The words, Kaladin. Yeah, he's like, he's coming, like, as he's, yeah, he is still, after the flashback, the um, thoughts of people that he couldn't protect are still going through his head, which is great. He's like, it all comes together. It's really good. And Kaladin begins his charge, and he throws himself from the bridge towards the Parshendi and breathes in the stormlight from the gems in their beards. That was planted earlier. Yeah. And he gets a surge of power, which gives him the strength. And he says the words, I will protect those who cannot protect themselves. And this is sort of like the big moment for Kaladin. Yeah. Big shonen. Basically. The storm came to life again. I mean, I love it. I won't lie. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's super cool. Yeah, I definitely am into the, like, him swearing an ideal and suddenly getting, like, a huge boost to his MP. (laughs) Uh, The way it's described in this section is that, like, swearing the ideal increases your attunement with Stormlight and what you can do with it. Yeah, it, like... One quote-unquote unit of stormlight, which doesn't exist, like becomes more effective and long-lasting. So, like, the amount that he has just makes him better than it had before. Yeah, it's the power of character development. And in the background, Moash says something just changed, something important, and right. Kaladin begins to do his saving people thing. Yeah, he's a he's a good boy. Did you uh, have any feelings about this uh, reveal of the uh, ideals, Bjorn? Um, I guess wow. that's a no. I guess that's a no. Not really. I was more just pleased that he took action. I didn't want to read more paragraphs about a man blaming himself. Well, it's the climax of the book. Like, he made a decision... And then some of his actions weren't very sustainable, but then he rejuvenates and he finds a purpose with which to cling. And that's pretty magical. Yeah. He temporarily does not have the big sad. (laughs) It's hard to have the big sad when you're fighting real hard. This is a captivating scene. I don't like Cal, and I'm not (laughs) sure if I'll like him at all as the books continue, but it was good to see this happen with his character, because we've been told he's really cool, we've seen a couple glimpses of him being, like, really cool in the past, but mostly we've just been stuck with uh, Cal of the Infinite Sadness, like, gosh, what movie is it where the horse is in the 
dark pond and it drowns. It's the never-ending story. The never-ending story. Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of feeling I get about reading about Cal. I'm just like, oh my god. And it is never-ending. It is never-ending. <laughs> um, it feels a little bit about that. So, so this is a very refreshing part. It it did feel over the top, but at the same time, I so much about Cal is over the top, so it works. I mean, Brandon Sanderson loves over-the-top climaxes. Yeah. It's like he wants to do a Gynax ending every time. Some might say it's anime. Oh, it's very anime. I would not deny. I have the power of God and anime on my side. He literally does. He literally it does, does though. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Is this... Wait. Is Stormlight all just a meme? It's all anime, all the way down. Always has been. Bang. Well, I mean, wasn't yeah. it the first book that he wrote? The correction, the first book that got p- published or wrote? Which one? Elantris. Okay. Is this the first one he wrote then? Because I think you were talking about how, like, within the Cosmere, they're all... No, I think, uh... I mean, he wrote, like, a draft of this book way, way, way before he wrote other things. I don't know if it was, like, the first thing he wrote. I think White Sand might have been the first one that he wrote as, like, planned to be part of the Cosmere. But I'm not sure. Yeah. It's it's cool. I think I'm a little disappointed after hearing the audio, to be honest. Uh, just because ima- I, I did not imagine their voices sounding like they do. The only voice that kind of sounds like how I thought it might is Dalinar, because he's old well, man dad. No no reason to let it ruin anything, just forget it exists. I guess in the future I'll try not to expose you to different interpretations of the same story. Only like the one that you like. Never consume something new. Don't like, don't read. <laughs> uh, anyways, so. Chapter 68 is called Eshonai. Is, is that how you pronounce her name? Eshonai, Eshonai, either way. I was saying Eshonai. Izzy. No. Eshi. Eshi. You did your best. It just wasn't very good. <laughs> I. So this is like swapping back and forth between um, Dalinar, Adolin. Not exactly Adolin, but like. We, got some, we even got some Teft POV. Yeah, it's like Dalinar's side and Bridge Four's side. Yeah. of We get some of Teft watching Kaladin go Super Saiyan. And he says, he's our bridge leader. That's our boy. Which is pretty sick. So we get back to Dalinar's POV, and he feels that the bridgemen would be dead by now, but Dalinar blessed them for their sacrifice. It It may have been meaningless as an end, but it had changed the journey. And then while he is working his way towards the bridge, he sees the bridgemen were fighting. Dalinar gaped, lowering Oathbringer with numb arms. He said, it was the most amazing, most glorious thing Dalinar had ever seen. Ugh. That part does feel a little anime, where it's like... Bridgman can fight? Well, no, where it's like, Dalinar is the Blackthorn, but he's like... I'm so awestruck by how cool this Bridgman is. Well, no, he's not looking at Kaladin, he's looking at... He's looking at, like, the, the the bridgeman. Right. But that's what I'm saying, is, like, never mind. Like, how could these common people 
these poor, desolate souls rise above their station. I mean, hey, it's a good story. So during the fighting, we finally see the Parshendi Shardbearer step into the battle. And we got some Shardbearer combat. Yeah. Welcome to the story, Ashonai. Good yeah. to have you with us. Spoiler alert, Ashonai's a she. We're going to be calling her a she, even though the books keeps calling her a he for a while. More like a she-nai. Yeah. Assuming pronouns is bad. Well, Dalinar... Uh, Dalinar was the first person to realize that there was such a thing as female Parshendi. So. Dalinar, Parshendi have gender? Parshendi are women? So we cut back to Kaladin, and he is going wild. It's he, time. It's time for can, Cal to let her rip. Yeah, he continues to have his conflict of he was protecting, he was saving, yet he was killing. How could something be so terrible and so beautiful at the same time? So he's not totally over himself. He's just made a step. Yeah, and spoilers, at least where I'm at in the third book, this is, like, still a thing. Yeah, and this is where Kaladin realizes that the Parshendi are comporting themselves honorably on the battlefield, not, like, focusing down already injured men and stuff like that. They're focusing on him because he seems the strongest. And he respects the Parshendi more than the Alethi. Cal's, like, game-recognized game. Yeah, that's going to be important later. Thanks, Parshendi. So, Kaladin does some battlefield uh, command of the Alethi, and he's the only person who seems to have an idea of what's going on, so people just seem to listen to him, even though he doesn't have the right color eyes. Yeah, he is just the most competent person around at this point, so everybody's like, I don't know, seems fine to me. Yeah, he even gets to boss Adolin around, and it's the beginning of something beautiful. God, I love how much Adolin does not like him. <laughs> Maybe my favorite part of the second book. Yeah, so Kaladin convinces Adolin to evacuate the rest of the men while Kaladin goes to save Dalinar. And while Dalinar is definitely losing to the Shardbearer, the Parshendi Shardbearer says to him in Alethi, it is you. I found you at last. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And Just then keep that one in mind. Yeah. And then Dalinar sees a glowing figure burst through the crowd, and he's like, "I'm definitely concussed." <laughs> this concussion is so strong. There's no way I could be not concussed right now. So Kaladin dashes in. And uses his spear to capitalize on the weak points that Dalinar created in the Shardbearer. And with this display, all of the Parshendi call him Neshua Kadal and flee. Great. I don't speak Parshendi, so I don't know what that means. Yeah, they have some kind of feelings about someone channeling. Hmm. Channeling? <laughs> oh. Surge binding? Ooh, he did it. He, he messed I mean, up. He's not actually surge binding. He's just using stormlight to enhance himself. And I think they do actually call that channeling. Oh, well. Am I completely wrong? I don't know. I don't remember them saying that, but I am not going to tell you you're wrong. Yeah. And then Kaladin gets to boss around Dalinar. Yeah. 
which is Dalinar is much more okay with it than Adolin is. Yeah. He's like, yeah, you right. You right. <laughs> Dalinar actually is like game recognized game. <laughs> yeah. Well, he also does game recognized game with the Parshendi shard bearer as they retreating. They do a shard blade salute to each other. Yeah. Uh, Something Dalinar's, about the Parshendi being more honorable. Dalinar's an honorable guy. And so is the Parshendi Shardbearer, apparently. Parshardbearer? I can hear Willie. Yeah, give me her, a sec. Her little murps in the background. Listen, yeah, she, we don't mind hearing Willie. We just know you mind the mic hearing Willie. Yeah, yeah. she's not a meower. She's a murr. Little chirp. She chirps and grunts. She doesn't really meow. So Dalinar has a bit of a conversation with Kaladin, and it's delightful. Uh, Dalin Cal, at it again. Yeah. Um, we get a bit of a moment where Dalinar's like, why did Sadea send you back for us? And Kaladin's like, you are so dumb. <laughs> Do you think there is any possibility that Sadeus would save you? But why did you come? And how did you learn to fight so well? By accident. What can I do to repay you? I don't know. We were going to flee from Sadeus, disappear in the confusion. We might still, but he'll certainly hunt us down and kill us. It's just sort of setting up what is going to be happening between Dalinar and Sadeus in the next section. Dalinar, sa yeah. Dalinar says, I'll take care of Sadeus. Return with me. I vow that you will be safe. I promise it with every shred of honor I have. The young Bridgman met his eyes, searching for something. Such a hard man for one so young. What a guy. And we're going to get sort of the other side of this sort of character reaction in the scene between Dalinar and Sadeus. We get it from Kaladin's perspective. Welcome to Kaladin Reacts. Yeah. Episode 69, Justice. Chapter 69. It's called Justice. Uh, we open on some Navani POV. So Navani is pushing her way through Sadeus' camp. She's heard... A uh, really bad rumor. Yeah. And, she and started a dirty little rumor. And Sadeus tells her, Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sadeus walks up and he goes, <laughs> It's really weird, but, you know. So Sadeus tells her that I express my condolences, and yeah. that's it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he like, says, I would have continued fighting, save for the fact that I saw your brother fall with my own eyes, swarmed by Parshendi with hammers. They began carrying away chunks of bloodied shard plate as prizes. Barbaric monsters. Sadeus sucks so bad. Sadeus is like, he's bringing Navani into his fantasies without her consent, which is not cool. <laughs> All that he wants is to see Delinar carried away after being... Like, torn apart with hammers. <laughs> I mean, for all he knows, that is what happened. Yeah. Uh, I do like that this whole section, as we go through it, until Dalinar shows up, is... Navani's super cool. First off, Navani's super cool. Um, I love Navani. But second, like, sometimes there's um, dramatic tension with, like, you as the reader don't know what's going to happen or like some character disappeared for a while and then they show up triumphantly. But this is just Navani being like, no chance he's dead. And we as the reader are like, no chance he's dead. Can't <laughs> wait for Sadeus to get it. I mean, it's sort of, 
I don't know if she's thinking there's no chance he's dead. She does sort of a grieving lover kind of routine. She does sort of a... Yeah. Oh my she's god. She's not ready to accept this. <laughs> Willie's like, I won't accept the Dalinar's dead. I cannot. Yeah. So but I guess... Oh, go for it. I just really like when she starts talking about creation and the prayer and how it's her her role to take because someone needs to and Dalinar doesn't have anybody who can. And she just talks about what it means to create, to put your sweat, blood, tears into it and then to offer it a sacrifice. I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah, she's one of those temporal artists. She creates a prayer sigil on the ground that is meant to be burned which i just think is super cool yeah it is one character the character for justice yeah it's really good (laughs) yeah and she lights it on fire and then she sees the army coming back what is their alphabet like they don't have one but well this is oh, this is a uh, this this is a glyph not their like usual writing okay yeah. so it symbolically means justice it doesn't necessarily like write out each stroke yeah correct okay yeah she's it's, not writing the word justice well i was just wondering it's said that the glyphs are pictorial in the sense that someone who has no idea how to read would know what it means no matter what but that seems sort of out there to me I mean, I guess it's pictorial in the same way that Japanese is pictorial, but, like, only barely. I mean, Chinese and the kanji, all that stuff, originally was extremely pictorial. Just over the years and years, it became simplified into characters they are now today. Yeah. Of course, Japan has three written languages just to make everyone suffer. Which is, like, what? Which is what Alethi does. They have regular writing, and then they have kanji, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we see images of sigils throughout the series in um, Shallan's sketchbook. But, like, in the third book, um, Shallan definitely mentions the idea that, like, you would have to learn what the sigils meant. So, like, I think they're supposed to be representative, but also sort of evoking, like, a metaphorical idea. Yeah. Because um, the one that- Sorry. Yeah, Navani describes the glyph as it was a, only a single character, but a complex one. Thoth, justice, and sort of, you know, it's a little bit delicious that the glyph for the idea of justice requires more complexity than most. Yeah. Yeah, later we see the, there's one that they have that represents the phrase bridge for, and... Once you know that it means Birch 4, you can kind of cock your head and be like, I guess. But, like, it is not a picture of a bridge next to Arabic <laughs> numeral 4. So we cut back to Dalinar's perspective heading into Sedeus's war camp. He realizes that he can't just do a big old rage conflict because that would ruin everything. Yeah. Were it not for the laws of the land, I would have <laughs> slaughtered you. Basically, he has another exchange with Bridge Four where he notes again that he was struck by their discipline. More and more, he was certain Sedeus had nothing to do with it. Really? <laughs> Savage? Sedeus, what does he even do? I mean, you're just now catching on that you, Sedeus has none of the credit for anything these people do. 
Yeah. And then later on in the series, it's mentioned that, like, Sidaeus's army has, has, like, a different discipline, more of, like, a schoolyard bully discipline than an actual army. That, like, if you show too much discipline like a soldier in the Colen army would, then, like, you get bullied by the other soldiers. So, like... Absolutely no chance that this is Sidaeus's fault. Worst fraternity in the world. Basically. Also known as the RA. Yeah, they all look at you and they're like, sorry, did you button your coat? What are you, gay? <laughs> um, so Dalinar runs into Navani and he's like, I'm done fronting. We're together now. <laughs> I ain't gonna front. And we get a bit of him talking about the realization that he's going to discuss further with Elokar. Yeah, which we get to see, which is great. Yeah. He says that he's done being guilty for being honorable, and that Noadon rejected his suggestion to write down his wisdom, and there was a reason. And we'll get that in a second. Yeah. It's so good. So... Also worth noting that this confrontation between Dalinar and Sidaeus takes place on top of Yoth, on top of Navani's Thoth glyph, which is so good. Yeah, time for some justice. It's very cinematic. You did what you had to, Dalinar says. Yeah. Uh, so Dalinar and Sidaeus confront each other. And they have a bit of a whispering conversation where they can say things much more confrontationally than they would be allowed to publicly. And Sidaeus essentially says that he did this to protect Elokar. Yeah, it was the only way. There's no way to protect Elokar in the kingdom except to get its greatest warrior killed. Yeah, and Sidaeus tells him that Elokar knows who tried to kill him and he knows it wasn't Dalinar. So there was no way for him to use his investigation against him, except to make him gain his trust. And Dalinar's like, wow, me acting with honor really did just screw me over. But I'm all right with that. Yep. It's it's reflection on you rather than on me. Yeah, essentially. We're going to get some payback. Yeah. So we cut back to Kaladin's perspective. And I think it's important that he, that Kaladin... Th- is looking at them and he's thinking the high princes continued their low-pitched conversation. He's like expecting some sort of politicking to happen that ruins everything. Yeah, Uh, it's... This scene is really good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is like Um, almost more Sanderlant than the words Kaladin. Yeah. So essentially, Dalinar and Sedaeus switch into public speaking mode and Dalinar says that I'm going to take the Bridgman back and Sedaeus refuses and uh, I kind of want to read all of this it's so good I mean we can (laughs) cut out the planning but like I don't know do you want to take one part and I'll take another do you want me to be Sedaeus I'll cut it down I'll cut it down to the idea So essentially, Dalinar and Sidaeus have sort of talked themselves into a standstill, and Kaladin convinces himself that this is another promise broken, another promise dies, and he's ready for Dalinar to give up on them. But then Dalinar summons his shard blade, sticks it in the ground, and says, 
the Blade, in exchange for your Bridgman, all of them, every one you have in camp, they become mine to do with as I please, never to be touched by you again. In exchange, you get the sword. And, whoa. Like, we have so much built up both about Dalinar, about Kaladin, and about the value of shard blades that we understand that this is like a world-shattering moment for Kaladin to witness. Yeah, I mean, we talked at length the last section about like, maybe 100 of these swords are known to exist in the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, not not just, like, the value of the swords, but in the sense that, like, we know that Kaladin had an experience where a Bright Lord betrayed him and killed his friends over a shard blade. Yeah, like, one of the best Bright Lords, quote-unquote, one of the best, like, was willing to slaughter a squad of his own people who had just won him all of this glory. And now a Bright Lord is giving up a shard blade in order to save him and his men. It is like the exact opposite of what happened before. And that doesn't have to be explicated, but we know exactly why Kaladin is completely overwhelmed by this gesture. Yeah, like there's, yeah, like you said, there's there's way too much to list or like yeah. even to remember unless you like went through and noted it, but like... Sadeus's whole thing has been that he wants a blade. Like, the reason that um, Rock is in the squad at all is because one of his family members came down to try and win a blade. Like you said, um, it's like poetry, it rhymes. Like, Kaladin is enslaved because of a blade. He wants to, and then he, Dalinar gives one up to free him. Like, every single thing in this book, like, about the Blades has built them up to be beyond priceless. Yeah. This moment is, like, the real climax of the book for me. It gets me every time. Yeah. Like, so, for me, I feel like the characters in Brandon Sanderson books aren't necessarily the most deep or the most nuanced, but they are definitely well-defined. We know exactly what each of these characters is thinking about this situation and it's so well planned that we know that this moment is important to all of them for different reasons. It doesn't feel contrived. No, it's like perfect synthesis for me. And um, this is about to be where I like get on my thesis train. So I've talked a lot about how I feel like Brandon Sanderson isn't some great auteur, but he's just sort of an incredibly skilled craftsman and he lets his work show. He's very transparent in the writing. You can tell what he's working towards and why and how, and it feels like something that someone has written. But the end of this book to me feels like something that emerged from the ether, fully formed and perfectly, perfectly synthesized something elemental sort of like, something that couldn't have been any other way. And somehow that doesn't conflict with it being the product of Brandon Sanderson's intense attention to detail. And like, I just, like for me, the next two books in the series are about objectively about as good as this book. But for me, the ending of this book elevates it beyond the other two. Hmm. Like, it just feels so right. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I haven't finished them, uh, so I'm not sure. But, like, yeah, I definitely am with you that it all, like, comes together very well. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the other ones maybe suffer from being middle chapters in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, not trying to defend the other ones. Like, I'm with you. I'm not they're saying they're bad. Good. Like they're definitely not bad. I think no, they're no, no. just they're just as good. It's just something about this ending feels perfect for me. Mm. And uh, we get this exchange. What is a man's life worth? Dalinar asks softly. Kaladin says the slave masters say one is worth about two emerald bromes. And what do you say? A life is priceless. He said immediately, quoting his father. Dalinar smiled. Coincidentally, that is the exact value of a shard blade. So today, you and your men sacrificed to buy me 2,600 priceless lives, and all I had to repay you with was a single priceless sword. I call that a bargain. You really think it was a good trade, don't you? Kaladin said, amazed. And Dalinar says, for my honor, unquestionably. And I want to cry. I will say, in my reading, Dalinar has by far been the most, like, emotionally affecting of the characters when Mm -hmm. he has moments like this. Like, Kaladin uh, certainly has the most cinematic ones. Oh, yeah. But, like, every time Dalinar has one of these realization moments... I mean, I just texted you, like, two days ago about a part I was reading in Oathbringer where it was like, I am attempting to not cry at work while I read Dalinar have this particular revelation. Mm -hmm. Bion, did you feel any more... have any more feelings about this more emotional climax than the more cinematic climax. Oh no, you're making me talk about emotions. <laughs> um, I think it shows a lot about Dalinar as the individual, as well as Dalinar in his role as a high prince, as a person of great military power, of literally being almost a weapon of mass destruction himself, mm-hmm. and what he is sacrificing for his honor. And it... It makes you admire him as a person because sometimes it felt like he he was using the codes as an excuse or just just one other coping mechanism. And it is, but it's also genuine to who he is. And this is very healing for Cal because he needs that. He wants that. His idealistic self, his child self is 120% down for it. Mm -hmm. He just, he's just so traumatized. Yeah. He's been traumatized so many times. And every time he's managed to gather himself back up again and pull up the pieces, once again, he gets fallen apart, traumatized, poked in all the wrong parts. But then here he has this guy who he really didn't want to like and was doing everything against it. But then for his own self-revelation, he decided to save him because it was the right thing to do. And now he watches another man for his own sense of honor and purpose within the world do it because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And he's not fronting at all. He truly believes that he didn't lose anything in that trade. Plus it makes Syl happy, as we learn in a future chapter. Yeah, we got a bit of that in a bit. Yeah, it's, it's good. So it's like, honor, 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 honor. I would go as far as to say, I love it. Wow. So then we transition from that 
intensely emotional scene to a scene that I consider deeply hilarious. Yeah, it's always nice to watch Elokar get beat up. As he deserves. It's also emotionally cathartic to, again, watch Dalinar be like, I'm the adult in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Elokar's like, did I miss anything vital? Yes, Dalinar said. Then he raised his leg and kicked the king in the chest. Yeah. Yeah, he's like destroying he's like kicking elicar as he summons the blade and destroying his shard plate around him and elicar's like calling the guards and dalinar's like no 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 i got you for three minutes (laughs) (laughs) one will Um, come to save you yeah and uh dalinar has the revelation that elicar cut his own saddle to create the image of an assassination attempt because he's a man baby. Yeah, he's awful. Like, yeah, he's like hyper paranoid and inflicting that on everyone else by being like, Well, you didn't believe me when I was just being paranoid, so I decided to make you think that I was justified instead of thinking I was crazy. See? Would someone that was crazy do that? <laughs> he could basically cause the fall of the Empire. <laughs> yeah. He does have sort of a uh, last Roman Emperor feel. Yeah. So essentially Dalinar beats the hell out of Elokar and essentially demonstrates to him if I wanted to kill you I could have done it any time. You're not that gr- you're not that good at fighting. Yeah. It's really good to watch Elokar finally just get slapped. Yeah. And Dalinar demands that Elokar name him the High Prince of War and he says that I will enforce the codes in all 10 camps. Then I'll coordinate the war effort differently. All gem hearts will be won by the throne, then distributed as spoils by you. We'll change this from a competition to a real war, and I'll use it to turn these ten armies of ours and their leaders into real soldiers. And Elokar says that, I thought you didn't want to force people to follow the codes. I thought you just wanted to be a good example. And this is when Dalinar sort of explains what he learned from Noadon. That Noadon didn't write the Way of Kings while he was fixing things, he wrote it afterwards. And that's like after he had tyranted his way into showing everyone the right way. It's like baby needs to take its medicine. Yeah. So he essentially says that being a good example isn't enough when people actively will take advantage of you for setting the example. So he needs to be a stern father to these naughty children. You don't make people who are oppressing others and destroying lives for fun and profit by encouraging them to do the right thing and appealing towards their sense of morals. You make them do the right thing. You make them do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Something something peaceful protest only works when the people you're protesting against are willing to change anyway. Yeah, that's definitely the avenue I was thinking when reading this. Like, this is definitely a gratifying character moment, but there's, like, the risk that it's sort of, like, a weird, fashy idea, but it works for me. (laughs) Dalinar's like, wheel out the guillotines. It's time. (laughs) Because, I mean, like, he's pretty much right. The only thing stopping this from being a little scary is the fact that Dalinar's a good guy, and we know that for a fact, in the real world, world, this is a bit more of a sketchy idea, but in this story, I'm glad he's come to this realization. Yeah, sadly, in the real world, you don't get to just jump around character POVs to know that in their own head they... Although, sometimes you read a book and you're like, wow, 
This character in their own POV thinks they're doing the right thing, but it turns out they're crazy. <laughs> but like, yeah. we are aware, literally God has come down and blessed Dalinar and like decided that he is the right person for the job. Yeah. Like, we don't get to see into someone's POV and say, this is the person I want imposing their worldview on me. Yeah, pretty much. That's literally a psychological phenomenon where we realize that our perspective of the world is singular to our own and we can never see the world like other people do. Yeah. We'll never see it the exact same way. Great, thanks. Yeah, but now we need to figure out who we want to be our fascist dictator. I vote for Dalinar. (laughs) I vote for Dalinar as well. I vote for Brandon Sanderson. Yeah. Maybe Navani or Yasna. Yeah. Speaking of Navani, Dalinar closes out this conversation by saying, oh, and I'm I'm dating your mother. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. I could have said that more strongly. <laughs> oh, and Jesse, please cut this out. But I'm slamming your mom pregnant until she cries. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely keeping that. Oh, thanks. Congratulations, failure nephew. You're going to get a little brother. Yeah, you were able to say it more strongly without actually using any swears, so we're going to keep it. Do you want a clean read of it, then? Sure. By the way, Elokar, I'm slamming your mom pregnant till she cries. <laughs> Peace. And that's where we end this part. That's where part four ends. Except it's consensual crying, so it's all okay. Yeah. <laughs> Only the most consensual. Dominar's like... Don't worry, son. There is aftercare. <laughs> I think this is a little too lewd. Hey. No one... We're, we have the explicit tag. Our episodes are marked explicit. We're not even yeah. that sexy, though, when we talk about things. It's not sexy enough for an explicit tag. It's just know. highly explicit memes. Did you hear what Dalinar just said to Elokar? <laughs> underneath the underneath, the subtext... It's called subtext. Look it up, hon. So now we're going to move on to part five, where we just sort of have a slew of chapters that are just reveal after reveal. Yeah. So let's just power through them. Yeah. It was kind of nice because after that such high drama interaction to have, wait, there were other characters we were watching. Sorry, are there other characters in this book? There were other characters. Where are they? What are they doing? There were other plot threads. So chapter 70 is called A Sea of Glass. And we're back to Shalon. I missed you. I I didn't miss her in this book. I like Shalon. Shalon is fine. T- Tyler. Yes. Does Shalon get better in the second book? Oh, second book Shalon is like the best thing that I've read so far. We'll get to it. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> like third book Shalon so far has been pretty not great, but like. That's probably just because I am, like, waiting for this character arc to end. (laughs) Waiting desperately. We're with Shalon in the first book right now. Yeah. And she's puzzling out that whole jam and bread scene that we said still doesn't make sense. And she realizes that Yasna had eaten the poisoned bread without eating any of the jam antidote. But she seemed fine. The jam to do. How happen? 
Once it was explained, it was much of an, oh. That's exactly what we told you. You were like, yeah. this doesn't make any sense. And we were like, they explain it so clearly. Yasna has never experienced the joy of a strawberry. No. The hugest tragedy in this world well, is that the animals and the food sources are horrifying. They're all just disgusting crabs. Why are they all covered in crabs? Why are they all chitin? Because of the high storms. The high storms have traumatized the local agriculture and fauna into weird golem rock encased packages. Shinovar gets yeah, to have strawberries. Shinovar, where strawberries still grow. They have strawberries and grass. That sounds so nice. Well, strawberry kind of spreads like grass. I mean, yeah. they they describe that it's like weird in Shinovar because there's like soil. Dirt is so good. They And they're like, but I'm supposed to be walking on rock right now. Why is there disgusting? Why is this rock so soft? Anyways, so Shalon reviews some of her CCTV footage of the event. That's both a really convenient and really horrifying ability because that means anything horrifying and traumatizing can be just relived. But also, it's really great because she can get these minute details. But if you don't want to relive it, just put it in a box. Put it in a box. Compartmentalize. Put it in Repress. a box. Put it in a we'll box. Get... Duct tape the box. Put the box away. We'll get to the box. Um, so, so Rand is in a box. Shalon is in a box. <laughs> so after reviewing the evidence, Shalon comes to a realization and travels to the Palinaeum to confront Yasna, where she tells her that she knows that Yasna's soulcaster was always fake, and that. Yasna soul casts without the use of a favoriel. Yasna does not lie well in this part. She is she is bad liar. I mean, I think once she's been found out, like there's only so much you can do. Yeah. Almost a and relief, it, probably. Yeah. yeah. And it makes Shalon realize that that means she also soul casted without the use of a favoriel. Crazy, crazy how nature do that. And when Yasna still doesn't believe her. Shalon is like, fine, I'll prove it to you. Let me do this very dangerous, unsafe thing while I'm fatigued and technically still recovering. This is fine. She communicates with the symbol-headed creatures, and it says that you need to tell me something true. The more true, the stronger our bond. And then Shalon admits that she's a murderer and that she killed her father. And the symbolic creature says, a powerful truth indeed. And then Shalon falls into Shadesmar. I mean, he probably deserved it. We'll uh, get to it. <laughs> have you ever heard the term morally gray? <laughs> he probably deserved it, though. He, he mostly we'll deserves it. it. <laughs> Tell um, me what you think about him deserving it at the end of book two. Okay. So Shalon falls into Shadesmar and doesn't know what to do at all. But Yasna goes into Shadesmar and saves her with her incredible cognitive realm powers. Yeah, she like creates a platform out of glass beads and it's like, you have the big dumb and then teleports <laughs> them back to the physical realm. Yeah. It's really interesting, glass beads, because when I think of building something, I don't think of glass beads. It's because in 
uh, shades more in the cognitive realm. Everything is the impression of what we think of it as, and physical items. So if you were items. to if you were to pick up one of those orbs, it would be like this is the orb that represents the table in this room. Yeah, like, high table. Yeah, this is the microphone bead. But the reason that they're beads is because we imagine every item as a separate piece, so they appear as separate beads. But as we might learn in uh, Mistborn Era 2, if we get to that part when they go to the cognitive realm, uh, water is land, because we think of water as one continuous item. So like, so like when they reach a lake in the real world, it's a hill in the cognitive realm, because the impression of it is one large object as deep as the lake, but it's flipped because we're thinking about it as part of the land. It's a thing. Fascinating. Beyond looks like they just gained insight. Well, no, it's just psychology. Yeah. Yeah, the cognitive realm's pretty crazy. Can't wait to read Emperor's Soul and hear you go wild. Gotta use my psychology degree for something. Yeah, seriously. Um, Anyway, we're reading Wave Kings. Yeah. (laughs) After coming back from Shadesmar, Shalon essentially says what Bion was saying. That's like, I can be someone you don't have to lie to, and you can like not mince words and pretend you you aren't who you actually are. And Yasta's like, fine. Never lie or steal from me again, Edward Gucci. Yeah, and uh, then Justin's like, Let's throw down. I'm reading about Voidbringers. Let's talk about Voidbringers. Reveals one of the most horrifying truths. Not until her next chapter. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll get there. Chapter 71 is called Recorded in Blood, and now all the jokes me and Tyler were making about Taravangian will make sense. Not, I mean... It feels kind of like the few scraps I've cobbled together of what the church in Bloodborne does, with, like, the bad use of people for their own beliefs on creating the better ending pretty you don't even know i mean again this is cobbled together from the bits and pieces i know about bloodborne no i mean but you're right but like if you're talking the part where you're talking about teravangian i'm saying like you don't even know how how much you're right oh (laughs) yay i'm right (laughs) Anyway. Oh no, I'm right. Anyway, Zeth's son, son, Volano, truthless of Shinovar, walked with yeah. a bowed back. Tyler explained the son, son to me, and I had difficulty with it still, on a side he's, note. He's the grandson of someone named Volano. I know, it's just if you're dishonoring, if you are trying to avoid dishonoring your father, it seems like dishonoring your grandfather seems more disrespectful, at least from the concept of your ancestors, you must respect them, your elders. It's not, you misunderstand. Your grandfather and your elders aren't your father. So it's, No, you don't understand. It's literally him. just for your daddy. <laughs> yeah, they're not your father. So Zeth is That's in Carbranth so because the last name on his list is King Teravangian, a beloved monarch. A beloved, simple-minded monarch. Can't wait to kill him. Yeah. So Zeth does some spy business and breaks into Teravangian's quarters. Lashings. Yeah. His lash is everywhere. And then Teravangian says, Truthless, I would say you know much truth, more than your countrymen. And then it's revealed that Teravangian was Zeth's secret master the whole time he was going around assassinating political figures. 
Yeah. Thank goodness. And then Teravangian's like, it was me. Has Teravangian been orchestrating this from a uh, original Alethian king dude? Or is this what Zeth feared and that someone who knew what he could do finally makes him? And this is after the the death of the Alethi guy. And this is... Yeah. What a great question. So there's sort of two parts to that. No, Teravangian is not behind the initial assassination of Gabalar, but Teravangian has been planning something like this from before that point. Yeah. He is not like the mysterious benefactor behind Gavilar's assassination. Listen, I understand it's complex. If you want later, I can like draw you a diagram to help you understand. He's going to mansplain it. Disgusting. Maybe he should just go eat some spicy food and calm down. Since he can't handle sweet food. I really can't. What's next? You can't read? I Gotta can... listen to this on audiobook? Uh, am I allowed to buy it in graphic audio? No. Oh, then no, I can't. So, to prove to Zeth that he's for real the utilitarian best, Teravangian shows him his murder hospital. Welcome. Horrifying. Welcome to my murder hospital. I strongly dislike that. Also, killing someone through extreme blood loss is not kind. Yeah. And through this, we realize that all of the chapter headings that are death quotes are Teravangian's notes. Thanks, I hate it. Yeah, they're like, uh, in the second book, he calls them exactly what they are, uh, I think. It's not like the death shakes, but it's something very close. You mean death rattle, a phrase that exists in our world? Is it called death rattle? I mean, I know that the real thing is death rattle. I just didn't think that the one in the book was death rattle. Yeah, he calls it a death rattle. Okay. But like, this is just pretty cool. The fact that we get all of these uh, epigraphs of these pre-death quotes and we're like, huh, that's weird. Yeah. we get like the notation of it being like seeming like academic notes on the quotes. And then yeah. we realize it was setting up for this, which is pretty cool. Teravangian, not a great guy. No. Um, not a humanitarian. No. Extremely problematic. This is humanitarian work, says the guy running the murder hospital. Didn't he say this is not humanitarian work? Yeah. Because because Zeth son son make honoring my dad I guess is trying are you trying to show me your your human side and he's like nah nah I'm gonna show you something way worse but that's like, my he, secret he, cap I do think it's humanitarian work yeah he's just trying to show him how brutal he's willing to be to get the good ending. Look at how much I'll suffer. I'll sacrifice and collect other people's lives to fulfill some greater purpose. Yeah. Which will be discovered uh, books from now. Yeah. Uh, chapter 72 is called Veristatelian, which is real short. It's a conversation between Shalon and Yasna. Yasna says that two orders of the Knights Radiant possessed inherent soul casting. It was based on their powers that the original Fabrials were designed. So essentially she says, uh, we are of these two different orders of Knights Radiant. And Shalon's like, what? Radiance? What's a radiant? Yeah. I wish that there were some words. Is this that. something Vorin? Yeah. 
And then uh, no, Yasna, ooh, Yasna reveals her findings to Shalon that she believes that the Voidbringers are Parshman and Parshendi. Yeah, that they're just waiting for some reason. It's time. Uh, chapter 73 is called Trust. We are back in Kaladin POV. He's having a conversation with Sel, and she says that Dalinar is a good man, despite the thing that he carried, which is the shard blade. And she says, it just feels wrong to me. I hate it. I'm glad he got rid of it. It makes him a better man. Hmm. Stop using the corpses of oh, my no. relatives. Oh, no. Thanks. Tyler, did you spoil? Oh, no. Well, sort of. Not exact. S- I asked a lot of questions. Bion asks a lot of questions. You don't understand what it's like to live with someone who only cares about background details and not plot details. <laughs> so you think you're fine. I to... need to know the intricate details of their character so yes. I can imagine them in my head and dream about them and have thoughts about them, okay? And then get upset and specifically dislike the books more because one of the official interpretations doesn't line up with exactly how you imagined it. I'm not trying to get upset at the people who created it. I'm frustrated because it keeps me from enjoying it. Because now I can't forget it. That trauma is repeating itself in my head and I cannot accept their interpretation. Well, maybe you should find some ideals and swear them. Anyway, the way... Yeah. Bion asks a lot of questions about, like, background details of how the world works. And sometimes I think I'm fine to reveal stuff and then be on ferret stuff out of me. I connected the two dots. But anyway. I forgive you. I also figured it out before the book tells you. So, like, I'm sure Beyond would have too. I do have brains from time to time. (laughs) Single brain cell. Mom says it's my turn with the brain cell. Come on, (laughs) Kaladin. So then Kaladin has a conversation with Dalinar. And Dalinar essentially says that he wants Bridge 4 to be his new honor guard. Which is a big honor. Guard. Uh, Thank you. And and Dalinar essentially places Kaladin outside the chain of command. And so the only person Kaladin has to listen to is Dalinar. And his son, right? Well, Elokar. Sons. Adolin. Oh yeah, and Adolin. But not like random. Not Sedeus. Not Sedeus. Basically, just like as far away from Sedeus as possible. Yeah, and Dalinar doesn't think about it until Cal explicitly reminds him hey, look at our cast differences again. Think about it a little harder. And then Dalinar thinks, oh, I see. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. I got you, fam. Dalinar has the right idea here. So Kaladin returns to Bridge Four's new quarters in Dalinar's war camp, and they're having chill stew time. Soup. God, I love stew time. Yeah. And all of the Bridge Four members essentially say, we saw you do magic. Can you teach us? <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that I do like about this, like when he shows up to stew time, He's like, why are you having stew time? We can eat. We're not slaves anymore. And Moash is like, it just didn't feel right to go to bed without stew time. (laughs) Gotta have my stew. It just becomes a tradition, ritual, a a way of 
I don't know, that the physical demonstration of that camaraderie and bond and protection and respect and care. Yeah, it totally Food is very important. Yeah, it totally makes sense that they're attached to the tradition. And then this stew time is so cathartic that Kaladin has the thought, 27 men lived. He'd finally managed to save someone. For now, that was enough. Holy shit, you waited until like the last page of the book. Kaladin, have you tried stew? <laughs> yeah, like third to last chapter. He's finally realized that there are people he's saved, not just people he's failed. Yeah. So chapter 74 is called Ghost Blood. It's another quick Shalon chapter. This is where essentially Yasna ex- explains to Shalon how disastrous it would be if all of the parchment were to rise up against them at the same time because they're integrated into every aspect of society on Roshar and they are part of a hive mind that can instantly communicate with each other. Yeah, and the thing that um, Jasna says is, like, there's no way to know when it's going to happen. Like, every time that it happened during one of the desolations, they just went from being chill to suddenly it's time to purge mankind. Are they connected to nature or um, intrinsically part of the world they are currently existing in? Are... Are there periods of desolation equivalent to natural disasters? Well, like, the desolations, nobody, I mean, the desolations were so long ago that at this point, people are, like, doubting that they existed. Yeah. So, I mean, for a while, the desolations were happening, like, every few decades, something like that. But the last desolation was, like, 3,000 years ago. I just read the section today. It was four and a half thousand years ago. Yeah. Because I was just wondering, because if they are intrinsically part of this world as part of their keeping everything functioning the way it should be, technically, not that it's great for the humans, like, are, is every time a certain amount of development occurs within the culture, they get reset so they don't go too far? So there That's... is something about this world that triggers a desolation, but obviously something changed around 4,500 years ago. Yeah. Because... When... Yeah, because they they weren't 4,500 years apart until 4,500 years ago. It's explained. It's definitely explained. Tyler just got to it. Yeah, similar to somebody explaining the bread thing. Like, someone sits one of the characters down and goes like, this is exactly how the desolations worked, why, and why it has been so long since we had one. You just have to wait for it. Yasna still is not completely on the money, (laughs) let's just say. But, Um, I mean, she can only do so much. Yeah. So Yasna says that we need to get to the center of it all. So we're going to the Shattered Plains. Let's get these characters all together. Yeah. The center. You get it? And Yasna says that uh, Kobzal was a member of a group called the Ghostbloods. And she, it's like a secret society. And she shows Shalon the symbol. And Shalon's like, oh, wait. Both my father and his hand servant had this tattoo tattooed on them. My dad was part of the Illuminati. Basically. Pretty much. My dad's the Illuminati. You know how sometimes people are like, the Illuminati did this? Like This they... time the Illuminati really did this. Yeah. There's like three Illuminatis running around. So chapter 75 is called In the Top Room. Uh, Dalinar is doing some stuff with Navani. 
Yeah. Doing some stuff we can't talk about because we're Mormon. The yeah. room Brandon where is, it happens. Brandon Sanderson doesn't want to talk about it. Because he's very PG. Safe hands. And then a high storm comes and Dalinar has a repeat of his first high storm vision. Which is sort of a future vision of Alethkar. And he has a conversation with that voice that he's had these conversations with at the end of each of his visions. And he realizes that all of the things that that voice has been saying are just sort of pre-recorded guesses and was never actually responding to his questions. Yeah, that voice was just like picking up audio logs in the environment and playing them back. So when Dalinar asked, should I trust Sadeus? And the voice was like, do it. (laughs) The voice was like, trust. It turns out he just says the word trust out loud at a pre-recorded time. And when he says unite them, he's not necessarily talking about the Alethi High Princes. Hmm. Almost like interpretation error plays a big deal. Yeah. And then the voice tells him that the Knights Radiant must stand again. And that he says, I am, I was God, the one you call the Almighty, the creator of mankind. And now I am dead. Odium has killed me. I am sorry. Thanks, Raze. Sorry that opium killed me. I'm dead now. There is no God. Opium finally got to me. We'll get there. Uh, And then finally we have the epilogue called Of Most Worth. And we finally get a Hoyd POV. Thanks. He says, can you feel it? Something just changed. I believe that's the sound the world makes when it pisses itself. Thanks, Hoyd. Yeah, so he has this great little, well, not little, because it goes on for like five pages. Uh, but he's like trying toying to- with some guardsmen. Yeah, toying with is what I was looking for. He's like toying with them about the most valuable thing a person can have. Yeah. And he lands on that what men value most is novelty, which Hoyd continues to be an author insert character. Yeah, he's crazy like that. And then someone appears at the guard post, a massive dark eyed man with a shard blade. The storm has come. Yeah. And the man says, go, run, raise the call, give the warning. I am Talanel Alin, Stone Sinew, Herald of the Almighty. The desolation has come. Oh God, it has come. And I have failed. Tyler knows what he's talking about. Is this the Herald that they just left to suffer? Like, everyone else just, like, walks away, and this one guy's still asleep, and they're like, eh! Time to hashtag walk away. Um, that's a yeah, great he question. Was, he was the one Herald that was not present in that prelude. The one Herald who slept through it, and now he feels the massive guilt. He didn't sleep through it. He was the only one that died in the final desolation. In this specific iteration of it? Yeah. Jezrian nodded to the ring of weapons. I was chosen to wait for you. We weren't certain if you had survived. A decision has been made. It is time for the Oath Pact to end. Kallik felt a sharp stab of horror. What will that do? Ishar believes that it's so long as there is one of us still bound to the Oath Pack, it may be enough. There's a chance we might end the cycle of desolations. Interesting. 
It'll make perfect sense. There's a lot of sacrificing of other people in this story by people in power. As people in power do. It's so great when I'm not the one being sacrificed. What do we tell the people, Jezrean? Kallak asked. What will they save this day? It's simple, Jezrean said, walking away. We tell them that they finally won. It's an easy enough lie. Who knows? Maybe it will turn out to be true. Forgive us, Kallak thought. Oops. Oops. He's talking about Tom. Yeah, Tom had a hard life. And we'll find out why. But that is the end of book one of the Stormlight Archive. Holy crap, that's a long book. Yeah. And these books just keep getting longer. Yeah, uh, each one of these books is longer than the longest Wheel of Time book. But also... But it doesn't feel as long. Almost because... Oh, it definitely doesn't feel as long. There's progression that is actively occurring. Listen, I am not going to sit here and defend, like, most of the individual books of Wheel of Time... I just think that, like, they have good moments, and then they pay off well, partially because they get to be finished off by Brandon Sanderson. Wheel of Time needed to be edited more heavily, it needed to be condensed into less number of books, and... Tyler, can you think of any Wheel of Time book besides the last book that has an ending as meaningful as the ending of The Way of Kings? For me, pretty much the only one I can think of is The Great Hunt. Um, Great Hunt has a solid ending, um, and then Book 12 has a solid ending, but also Book 12... That's a Brandon Sanderson book. It's... I would imagine that that scene was written by Robert Jordan, but, like, the way that it plays out is almost word for word the way that one of the scenes in Oathbringer plays out. Mm. Like... Almost, you could just change out the names, and it would be the exact same. Well, we'll get to it in, like, a year and a half. Yeah, seriously. And with that, we have finished The Way of Kings. We're probably going to take a little break, but then when we come back, we're going to be talking about The Fires of Heaven. Yeah, I think um, Jesse and I will be happy to knock out some... Uh, minisodes for the next couple weeks but Bion and I are about to move so like everything's gonna be falling apart yeah this is going to be the second week in a row you've gotten an episode and now you're gonna have to wait <laughs> now that you've got a taste of what it's like for a weekly episode release it's like when youtubers say I update every Wednesday and then they disappear for two God, years that's like the most depressing thing to see is like update Uh, we're switching to weekly episodes. I've got all sorts of ideas for great videos. It's going to be perfect. Last upload four years ago. Luckily, we've never made any promises. Yeah. (laughs) And with that, uh, if you were to find it in your heart to leave a review on iTunes, it really helps people find us. And we love hearing from people that listen to the podcast, especially even anything that would help us improve. Constructive and criticism. We yeah, will const- take criticism. Preferably constructive, but yeah. we'll, we'll take Fe- it. Feedback is highly valuable. And another way to provide feedback is to tweet at us at Wheel Reading, which I'll have the link in the description. Yeah. And with that, I hope I've generated your engagement and you've engaged with this content. And we love you. I'm Thank you for surviving. Oh, sorry. I was just thinking how long we've been talking. We've been talking for so long. It's, we're, the recording, to 
peek behind the curtain. Two hours and 11 minutes. Anyway, Jesse's Jesse. Tyler's Tyler. And Beyond's Beyond. Whoa. They get to have their own outro. We love you all. We'll see you next time.